Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. So once, generally once during each retreat, I try to... um, uh, how can I say? I give a talk. That's uh, really aimed exclusively. It's really for anybody that wants to awaken. That's a simple way to put it. So if it's interesting to you, this is the one to listen to. I hope it's worthwhile listening to. We'll, we'll both find out that together, but... Probably the most useful place to start is to is to get the orientation straight because if you don't get the orientation straight, you can literally sort of spin your wheels for years and a lot of those years will be spent in a kind of spiritual frustration. By the orientation, I mean when we're looking at these, as I said earlier, I think there's these two fundamental existential issues of life, right? Who am I and how do I live? 
And as far as the first one, the who am I part, it's so important to be oriented into the always and already, not oriented towards what may happen or come at some point in time later. You know that when you're sort of sitting around waiting, hoping to have some one of these big event experiences you've read about or heard about or any such thing, you know, when you're doing that, you're literally pushing away reality. You're literally pushing away your conscious acknowledgement of your own true nature because your own true nature has nothing to do with what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next year or the next month. It's rooted completely in, all, in the always and already. What you are is always and already what you are. You, you never, ever, 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 ever will or can become what you are. There's a lot of becoming in life. In fact, most of life is becoming, right? You're born, you grow up, you change, you evolve. There's a, that's a whole segment of an aspect of life and being that we're all very, very familiar with, the whole realm of becoming. But in terms of realization, at least initial realization, it's we have to step out of the world of becoming in all of its guises. Because the, the seeking impulse or the yearning impulse needs to be oriented towards the always and already. If it's oriented towards what might happen at some other point in time, or it's oriented towards when my experience that's now happening changes in some way, then that's going to mean something significant. But in terms of awakening, that's not actually true. All those are the ways we sort of deceive and confuse ourselves from recognizing the always and already. Because of course, reality is a big word. It's hard to know what other word to use, but reality being reality has to always and already be. There's no point that reality comes and goes, okay, now I'll start being reality, right? Now I'll, now, I'll, now I'll start. You know, yesterday was just nothing but delusion, but now I'll start being reality. Reality never starts being reality, right? There's, there's no moment where it goes, okay, now, now it all starts. I'm saying these things just to sort of counter the, the, the seeking energy that gets... Um, mobilized and oriented in sort of the wrong direction. And I know all about it because I did it myself. (laughs) And then I watched people doing it for 22 years now. So I did it myself until I didn't. (laughs) So you'll hear me and those of you, most all of you have heard me You've been exposed to my teaching for a while, if not a long time. And you know I'm often orienting things into the always and already, using different terminology at different times. But basically, 
So when we, when we start to orient our attention towards the always and already, we are letting go of anticipating anything in the world of experience. Now, we do call it the direct, we call things like awakening and, and realization sort of the direct experience. But strictly speaking, we're not actually talking about a experience direct or indirect. Uh, that's a sort of teaching strategy to, to tell people like, get out of your mind, get oriented more towards in the, in the, in the, in the direction of experience, not in the direction of figuring it all out. That's, that's not going to help you. So reorient toward experience. So it's a, it's a strategic maneuver, right? But it's important to understand that you're not sitting there waiting for a particular experience to come along, right? Um, an experience that will say, okay, now this experience is reality, unlike all the other experiences, whatever they were. That's, that's not going to happen. You may have experiences where you feel that way. It's one of the things, you know, if you sit around doing nothing for long enough, call it meditating, <laughs> occasionally you can get some pretty wild experiences. And you can get some experiences that are about the best experiences. Well, they're, be- they're beyond what you can even imagine. They're so good. And whenever we have an ex- overwhelmingly positive experience, we almost immediately assume that it is reality. Why, why is it reality? Because it feels so damn good, you know? So it's one of the sort of the <laughs> tricky parts about spirituality is you do have some pretty cool experiences now and then. And awakening certainly has experiential byproducts that happen. But in and of itself, like I was saying yesterday, when we're looking into our true nature, so of course our true nature must be present always and already. Right? There's no point in which we become who we really are. That just is lot, you know, illogic insanity. When am I going to become who I am? What could that even mean? Right? It, it, it actually means nothing. So I'm all saying this because this is what, that's to, to, to sort of start to root attention into this old spiritual cliche called the present moment. But, you know, what the hell does that mean, the present moment? It's a way of saying, don't look outside of what's presently occurring. That's what it means to be in the present moment. Don't look outside of what's presently occurring right now. Look into the nature of what's presently occurring. That's the, that's the shift. You're actually looking into, deeply into what is presently happening, not into what could be happening. So that's a real let go for the sort of the spiritual ego, you might say, who's it's sitting around like a baby bird with his mouth open, hoping that God drops enlightenment into his mouth. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm waiting. We've done all the right things, I think. So we just have to see that, that tendency, because, you know, at certain points along the way, it's, 
it's just part of how we're hooked up, right? We're, we're hooked up around pleasurable, nice experiences and, and anticipating and, you know, all that stuff. There's a part of us that's hooked up that way, which leads to sorrow. So that word experience is kind of a key word because there's always some experience unfolding all the time. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, a lot of times somewhere in the middle. So there's generally some kind of experience happening. And the nature of experience is that it's sort of either alluring, it pulls you in, or repelling, it, it makes you want to run away, right? So a nice experience is alluring, right? It's, it's seductive, right? Really nice experiences are really seductive, right? And experiences that are painful and harsh are... Just the opposite. We tend to be repelled, repelled by them. But either way, it sort of traps us into the world of experience. And the world of experience, I like experience as much as the next guy. <laughs> but to be completely trapped in the world of experience is a topsy-turvy place to live, Right? Because experience is very unpredictable. You can't predict what experience you're going to have one second from now. You never know, right? Experiences come to you without asking your permission and they depart without saying goodbye, right? They're topsy-turvy, right? They, they, they occur whether you want them or not to. So that's the nature of experience. So experience obviously is not what always is. It's not what is always and already the case. Experiences are sort of the spice of life, you know? Sometimes the spice is good and sometimes it's not so good, but it's the spice of life. But it's not what's always and already the case. So when we start to look into our our own experience of being, because that's what spirituality is. When you get it out of the conceptual realm of spiritual fantasy and theology, it's, it's a deep exploration of the direct experience of being. That's what it is. It's not an attempt to escape the direct experience of being, which is often what's happening. And that, you know, especially if it's not pleasant or even if it's boring you know we try to escape the direct experience of being so when you do something say like when we meditate you are being undistracted from the direct experience of being right you're not doing something else to distract yourself or to change your experience necessarily you may still be distracting yourself. You may be fantasizing about being in Tahiti in an attempt to change your experience or whatever, you know. But all the 
externals are kind of taken away when we're meditating and we're just, we're kind of stuck with ourselves. You should probably call it, instead of meditation, maybe someday I'll rename it, you know. We'll do 40 minutes of being stuck with yourself. <laughs> and when you do first start doing something like meditation, you know, it's, it's sort of disquieting at a certain point because you see that so much of what happens in human experience is, is, is not occurring with your permission, that it just occurs, Right? Your thinking doesn't say, hey, do you want to think right now? Okay, let's think. Or do you want to stop? Okay, we'll turn. It doesn't do that. It just happens or it doesn't happen. Uh, you can be sitting there doing nothing and all of a sudden some little strange door in your unconscious opens and all of a sudden you feel some weird anxiety and you have no idea why you feel it or where it came from. And it, it didn't ask you if it could show up. And it often doesn't even tell you what it's about. That just, there it is, right? Or it could be something else. It could be all of a sudden you're kind of sitting there in a state of confusion and then three breaths later you're just in this wonderful state of bliss, of of enjoyment. And you don't know how that came, right? Of course, when you have that kind of change, your mind starts to wonder, like, how did that occur? Because I want to be able to repeat that. Right? I like that. I want to be able to repeat that. Kind of like a drug addict, you know? I like that. I want to repeat it. How much does it cost? <laughs> so when we... But one of the beauties of, of doing something like meditation is at some point it, you just start to realize like, okay, it's just... The world of experience, just experience, it just comes and it comes and it goes and it goes and it comes and it goes and it's unpredictable and I can't dictate it and it doesn't ask my, for my permission. And geez, even trying to sustain and maintain the really great meditative experiences actually has a tinge of sorrow to it. Because I'll get up from my meditation, I'll go about my day, someone will insult me and I won't feel bliss anymore. And then I'll wonder, how do I feel that again? How do I get back there, dear teacher? How do I take those cool and groovy experiences of meditation when they show up into my daily life, right? And then there's lots of books that get written about that. Here's how to do it. (laughs) They should all have a disclaimer, and you will fail, you know. (laughs) But, and the reason they fail is because Again, we, it's very easy for any of us to kind of lose our orientation, isn't it? Like you can understand something clearly and then sometimes five minutes later you're, you're just disoriented and it's all confusing and you don't know which way's up and which way's down and which way to go and what to do and, you know, what happened. And so it's, it's kind of its own evolution to begin to leave the world of experience, just leave it alone. Which does not mean to push it away or try not to have it or deny whatever you're... It's just to just leave it alone. Again, those of you who've been with my teaching for a while know the way I put this in meditation is simply allow everything to be as it is. It's one of those sneaky teachings. 
You know what I mean? It's, it's like the simplest, seems like the most simplest, harmless thing. You know what I mean? But it's like if somebody snuck an atomic bomb in the form of something like a little a marble or something. You know, it's, it's much more powerful than it looks. It's much more difficult than it appears, too. But as we begin to allow any moment of experience just to be what it is, and we see that experience changes, and you watch it change, and when you watch it change, you start to, there's this intuition that starts to come to you, this, in, this sort of subtle sense of, there seems to be something that sustains itself through all this changing of experience. There seems to be some, some quality, quality of being, you could say, that seems to always be, but it's confusing because what always is isn't an experience, right? The experiences are in the world of change, and thank God they do change, right? But that intuition that there's, there's something underneath all this world of experience, right? The way we usually conceptualize this to ourselves is something very simple and common, you know? It's just like, they all happen to me. And when we say something like that, they all happen to me. All these experiences are happening to me. Of course, that doesn't tell us anything about the me, but it does, it is a kind of way of, Giving, giving articulation to a kind of intuition that something seems to always be here. Something seems to always be here. But what it is doesn't seem to be any, any kind of experience. It doesn't, it's, it, fortunately, it's not the terrible experiences that's always here. And it's not the great ones either. And beginning to really hone in on that intuition is really, really important and useful. Because it, when you do that, it, it, it literally can cut decades, you know, if you believe in lifetimes, maybe lifetimes off the whole search. Because it, it starts to sober you up from the endless chase for more and different and better experiences. And you start to go, what is that thing? What is that that seems to always be here? What is that? There's something that I just intuitively feel is always here. We do it every time you, you think about your past, right? And you, there's, some, there's, something, there's something that seems to be there and here at the same time, right? Everything's changed. Your past isn't occurring in the present moment. But there was some common denominator between your past and your present. The, we call that common de- denominator me or I, right? I was six. I was seven. This happened to me. This happened, this happened six years old or 30 years old or 40 years old. And it's all happening to me. It's, it's, it's all about I. Okay. But that itself is giving a kind of a, again, a kind of articulation of an underlying sort of intuition that whatever this I or me is, 
seems to, seems to be sustained through all the changing of experience because they all seem to happen to me, whatever that is. And that seems to sustain itself through all the changing of experiences. Okay, so when you start to see that, now you're starting to sober up a little bit more. Because now you're, you're starting to, when you really see this, of course, many of you have seen this a long time ago, but when you really see this, not simply because I describe it, because you really start to see it in your own experience, because it is right there in your own experience, and you don't even have to look very deep. You know, this isn't like difficult stuff. You just have to take a good look at the nature of your experience. And the nature of all experience is all the same. It's universal. Not that our, our experiences are universal, but the fact of how, how it all operates is very universal. So when you start to see this, you, you get onto something. You're kind of like, you know, you're, it's, it's, it's like a dog catching the scent. You know, it's like, ah, I, something's here. I, I, something, something other than just the passing realm of experience and the, the endless trying to grasp and sustain and push away experiences. There's, there's something that seems to sustain itself. And I'm not saying that something actually does sustain itself. I'm just giving a kind of description. There seems to be something there. When you really get that, it is kind of like a dog getting on, a, getting it like, all right, I'm on to something. This isn't the same old endless rat race of looking for an experience that will only disappear on me like all of them do. This, this feels intuitively like this is something different, right? It's, you're starting to engage in a more primary, basic, fundamental relationship with your own experience of being. So, of course, when we start to look into that, that's where, the, that's where the, the confusion begins, right? What is that that's always here? What do I mean when I say me or I? What, what am I actually talking about? I feel like I, I, you know, we say it a million times over a lifetime, and we can say it a million times in a lifetime and not actually know what we're talking about, although we can feel like we know, until you really look at it. And when you really look at it, you realize one of the biggest, of the biggest mysteries in the whole universe is you. Because whatever you are seems to always be here, but as soon as you, you try to find out what that is, it seems to be just incredibly elusive. Right? The me that's having these experiences seems to be so elusive as almost to not even be there because it's like I can't find me. <laughs> but of course the the obviousness of what this term I and me really refers to is right there. It's not hidden, right? It's not, a, it's not some s- s- sacred, you know, um, difficult experience. As I like to say, it's not, it's not like finding a needle, a needle in the haystack. It's the haystack, you know. You're looking through the need for the needle in the haystack. You're pushing away all the hay, right? It's like if somebody says, hey, what's hay? Well, it's in that pile right there. You start looking in the hay, you know, and you, anyway. I probably wore out that metaphor years ago. <laughs> it's one of the drawbacks of teaching for a while. 
Okay, so what always seems to what always seems to be here? Well, there seems to be this absolutely basic. I say basic so you don't start looking for some wild version of it. Just just your ordinary everyday awareness. All experiences seem to be unfold and be witnessed by and experienced by. There seems to be aware, awareness seems to be the common denominator in every experience, every moment of your life. You don't seem to be able to get away from it, right? Even when you want to get away from being aware, you can't. Because sometimes people want to stop being aware, right? I just want to turn it all off. When you're having a terrible day, I just want to go to sleep, which means I just want to go into oblivion and not feel this anymore for a while. I want to wake up, so I don't want to go into real oblivion, but temporary. (laughs) Which is a way of saying, I want to turn this damn awareness off, right? So, okay, every night you go to sleep and you kind of turn it off. At some point it may not turn off, but that's a whole other story, but... So all of experience is unfolding within this opening, this clearing space of your awareness or consciousness, if you will. And it's, and it's, the difficult about modern day is we've heard all these things for the most part. If you're into spirituality, you've read all this stuff. And so you hear the words and it's so easy for us to just think, I understand it. I, I got it. I've read the word and I, I know what it means. And <laughs> you can't actually understand awareness. If you think you, you've understood it, you're more confused than somebody who's really certain that they can't understand it. You know, you can't really subjectively understand it that well. And it's an amazing thing because it's, it literally, subjectively speaking, it lights up your world. It's the thing that you can't take away. If you take away, there's just oblivion. In fact, there's not even the experience of oblivion without that, without awareness, without consciousness. And yet, this thing that's always there and always operating and always functioning in this moment, as much as any moment that it'll ever function. This thing that seems to always be sort of the the background of every experience is not something that you you can get a hold of, right? You can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't touch it, you can't feel it. You can't find it and you can't lose it. Now that's a pretty weird thing. There's not many things in life that are like that. Most things you can touch, taste, hear, smell. You can find them. You can lose them. Experiences are like that. You can have an experience and you can lose it. You can find it and it disappears. But awareness is sort of of a, of a totally different nature. That, and it's the confusing thing because it is unlike everything else that's happening. Nothing else is like it. And yet we try to relate to awareness as if it was kind of like other things, that it was like an experience, for instance, and yet it's not. Or like it's this thing, but it's not this thing. 
It's the, it's the clearing, it's the aware space in which things are perceived. And so it goes. Now, it's easy to lose track along the way, even in this little talk. That when I'm talking about, when I'm, we're looking at for the moment, the nature of awareness then, remember where this all started and what it really is. Where it all started and what we're really doing is we're looking into the nature of your own being. Because other, you, if you forget that, you just think, oh, I, whatever that am, now I am looking into awareness. And, you know, you, you, you project awareness as another object that you're analyzing. But that's not actually what's happening. Awareness isn't an object that you can analyze. It's that which sees you analyzing it, which notices the analyzing. Like I said, it lights up the whole it, it lights up your entire experience of being. As it says in the gospel, I am the light of the world. And we go, ooh, wow, you're a big shot. No, he's just confessing what is happening with everybody always and already all the time. It's giving voice to to a universal truth. So when you start to look into your true nature, in one sense, I think as I kind of hinted at yesterday, inquiry is, is kind of a way of just getting you it's just a way of redirecting attention. That's really what inquiry is. And it's a way of getting you to pay attention. What am I really? And you'll never find it in a book. You'll never find what you are in a book. It's only, you you only find it in your direct, I wish I had a different word, experience of being, right? But it's a funny thing is it's not an experience, is it? The awareness that's right now happening so you can see me, you can hear me, you feel what you feel, all of that, all of your senses are lit up with conscious awareness, right? So, and yet you can't find that, you can't grasp it, you can't hold it, you can't taste it, you can't touch it, you can't find it, and you can't lose it. Now what else in life is like that? But it's the common denominator. It's always there, right? It's always, 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 always there. There's no such thing as a conscious moment where you're unconscious. <laughs> I mean, we'll say such things, but we just, what we usually mean when we say someone's kind of unconscious in their daily life, it just means they're, they're, they're basically distracted or deluded. They're not actually unconscious. So in spiritual circles, I've, I've stayed away from the word that's usually used in spiritual circles because it's so, it has a lot of drawbacks. And usually what, in spiritual circles, they call this like the witness, right? The witness. But even to say the witness implies that there is a witness. 
But the funny thing about the witness is there is no the or a. There's just witness. There's just witnessing. There isn't actually a witness. There's just witnessing. Right? Now, I remember when this started to dawn on me. And, and in Zen, you know, they don't, they don't give any of these kind of talks. They don't really tell you much of anything. You know, sometimes you think they're just purposely confusing you, but they're not really, but it can feel that way because they don't lay anything out. And, that's a, and there's a wisdom to that because it means you have to find it out for yourself, right? You have to find it out for yourself. I remember the day that I, it just sort of occurred to me and I, I, I just got on like, oh, geez, there seems to be this, this, this awareness seems to be the, the, the constant in every and all experiences, right? And that, but wait a minute, I noticed what, what's aware of that awareness and my mind started to play this trick as if there's some infinite regression of witnesses or something, but that was just a little trick of the mind. But I knew I was onto something because I'd, I'd, been, I'd finally been started to be pulled out of the addiction to experiences. And I was like, hey, what's having the experiences? What's this thing that's like conscious, aware, awake to everything? You know, maybe that's important. <laughs> So as we pay attention to that, and really what it is, is just that you just acknowledge it. It's the practice of simple acknowledgement. What else can you do if you're not chasing a particular experience? It's the practice of acknowledgement. When I look deeply and profoundly into what I am, into what seems to always be, Well, it's pretty, at some point, it starts to become pretty obvious what seems to always be. Lights on state of awareness. That seems to be the common denominator in everything. I can't grasp it. I can't hold it. I probably don't even understand it. And the nice thing is, none of that matters. The practice is the practice of acknowledgement. It is Awareness seems to be always, always, and it also seems to be already. So before I do my awareness practice, before I try to bring more awareness to any moment, there's already awareness of that moment, right? So you're always beat to the punch. It's kind of like silence. You know, before you try to be silence, the silence is already there. You know, if you ever doubt yourself, if you ever have any doubt about it, you can just sit down, meditate, and ask yourself as soon as you sit down, is it actually true that the silence that I'm just about to look for isn't already here already? And within seconds, you'll go, holy smokes, it's already here. There is a silence. Now, what was I going to chase? Oh, silence. Does that make any sense now? No. In fact, to chase it, would it be a denial that it already exists? So what do you do if you find yourself in a situation like that? You just give acknowledgement. Oh, what I was just about to look for, apparently, I'm starting to notice is already here. Hmm. And you just rest with the acknowledgement, with the knowing of that, with the feeling of that, you might say. Oh, awareness. Oh, it seems to already be here. Oh. Hmm. That's different than let's all try to be really aware. 
Because the first thing you have to do to try to be really aware is to deny that you're already aware. Right? I have to be aware. Why? Uh, because I'm not aware. But you have to be aware even to know that you're not aware, don't you? Oh, yeah, what am I doing? I don't know. What are you doing? Right? <laughs> it's kind of like, like a dog chasing its tail, right? So if you ever had a dog like I did that could actually catch its tail after about three spins and he would catch his tail, it was this little, well, it was a big Shih Tzu. Shih Tzus are supposed to be like, like 12, 10 to 15 pounds. We had a 25-pound Shih Tzu. And <laughs> I was a kid. I loved having a dog with the first name was Shit. <laughs> Shih Tzu. And so I went all over the neighborhood saying, guess what kind of dog I had. So anyway, we had this... We had this monstrous little shih tzu, and he would do it. Dogs do occasionally, and he would see this thing dangling over here and kind of moving everywhere, and he'd go, hey, what's that? And he'd start to chase it, and da 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 But, you know, he could, it was just long enough. He could, after about three or four spins, he could catch it, right? And he'd catch it, and then he'd literally just look at you like... <laughs> like, what do I do? <laughs> So I caught it, you know, I'm, like, I can't do anything. I can't walk like this. I can't eat like this. I, you know, so he let, after a while, he let it go, right? And then he'd go, hey, there it is again. And he'd just spit it and he'd catch it. <laughs> so your whole, like, spiritual life can become something kind of like that, you know? When all he had to do is kind of look around and go, oh, that damn thing's attached to the back of me. I don't actually have to catch it. I don't have to chase after it. I don't have to find it because it's right there all the time. Anytime I care to look, it's right there. I'll be darned. Now I don't have to go in circles and get dizzy and feel stupid when I catch it, you know? (laughs) And (laughs) there, there is a kind of correspondence, actually, in spiritual life, you know? And it's certainly that way with consciousness or awareness. And you go, oh, what am I doing searching for it? What am I doing searching for a consciousness that's, that I'm, that's already conscious? What could be more ridiculous? I'm like a dog chasing its tail. And so you just, it's not that you go, okay, well then, this whole thing is done and, you know, you crack a beer and walk away or whatever unless that's what you want to do but the other internal gesture is just like oh it is and this thing called awareness is already present and it's already functioning quite well and Something kind of odd happens when I rest in that acknowledgement. So it's not just an intellectual acknowledgement, like, yeah, 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 okay, let's move on. But it's, you kind of rest in it. And when you rest in that acknowledgement, it has a strange effect on you. Just resting in that acknowledgement, there's a kind of quietness that starts to... It's not that the quietness isn't there, but it just becomes more kind of enhances it. And the simple resting in the simple acknowledgement of awareness tends to sort of brighten awareness a little bit. 
it takes on kind of a quality of kind of a presence. Oh. And you're never forgetting that, remember, we're not just talking about awareness as if it was simply an interesting thing to look at. We're actually where we began, which is looking into the first fundamental question. What am I? Who am I? By God, if you ended up to be something more like awareness, that's really, really, really different than what you thought you were, like about as different as you could possibly imagine. But as you kind of rest with it, you start of, it starts to come together like, oh yeah, I understand a little bit. No wonder they say you can't grasp it and you can't lose it. Oh, I get it. That, that's why they say it's not, that's, it's not an experience. That's why they say it's empty. I always thought empty was like an empty box, but this is like awareness is empty. You can't find it, but you can't lose it. It's kind of a weird, strange thing. Oh, and you just rest in that. And at any point along the way, the sort of the, the little click in the brain, the little click, the click that you can't make happen, but happens if you create the right environment, you might say. The little click in the brain that goes, oh, this awareness thing, this isn't simply something I'm noticing. This is actually something I am. The only thing that notices awareness is awareness. The idea that I am somehow back there behind it doing the awareness is the fundamental illusion. I am being aware. Great. Go find that I. I can't find it. Why can't I find it? Perhaps it's because it's not there. There's nothing behind it. Right? So when I first got onto this and I wanted to know what or who is aware of awareness and I was, that I was projecting this sort of regression in my mind until I finally started to recognize like, oh, that's just, that's just imagination. That's, that's an assumption that something or someone has to possess the awareness. Something or someone has to be doing it. But that's not the case. That's why when you do this little self-inquiry thing and you get below your ideas and assumptions and all that, you realize, I can't find myself anywhere. Well, you can't find yourself as an idea or a thing or an experience or anything else, but, well, what's left? What's there like every single time you've ever asked the question, who am I? It's just, what, it's just so much what we don't expect. Nobody ever told me I was a, a, an awake, bright, empty nothing. I thought I possessed it. I thought I was the one that was aware. Well, just change it a little bit. Not you, you weren't the one who was aware. You were the awareness itself. Oh, that's a little click in the mind. The little, aha. That can change everything. That will change everything. That'll be like one of those moments where forever after you will look at life before and life after that moment. I don't mean to say that, it's, that you necessarily will have some big mind-exploding experience. That might come as part of the package. It might. And it might not. And guess what? It doesn't matter. Because remember, the consciousness part, the awareness part, it's not that experience. 
Sometimes when you realize something for the first time, there's a big, aha, right? And there's relief and there's like, you feel like a burden dropped and there's all these experiential byproducts because of the newness of it. And if you're not careful, you'll think that all those experiential byproducts are the the thing itself, right? And if you think that, then you'll keep chasing after those. I think of that as like chasing after the first kiss. There's only one first kiss though. You don't get two, right? Because number two is the second kiss. (laughs) It's not the first. (laughs) So it takes some clarity. And even after people have one of these kind of shifts, often it will take them some real time to get clear about it, to get really clear about it. Because very often people will chase the byproduct of that kind of acknowledgement. And those byproducts might last hours, days, weeks, months, or a year or two. And because it can last quite a while, you'll think that's it. And when they start to dissipate, then you might think you're losing something. And then you'll ask the dear teacher, how do I get back? That experience, you're basically asking, how can I have the experience of the first kiss again? Well, you might be able to perform one of the, what I think of as spiritual chiropractic maneuvers of your consciousness and sort of click, click yourself into aha, sort of re-recognition. Then you'll, you'll feel really good because you go, oh, aha, oh yes, what's always and already here and I've got it and oh yeah, okay, now I'm, I'm safe and I'm comfortable and, you know, really, really, really good. But meanwhile, you've totally, you're in a total state of denial that you're going to lose all those experimental byproducts again and probably be in the same place you were just in, right? But if you go through the washing machine of that experience for a while, you start to get clear on even the really cool experiences that can be part of a real spiritual opening those are wonderful experiences and then definitely have them. Don't, don't try not to have experience. That's not what I'm saying. Have them, but don't mistake them for the truth of your being. Otherwise, when they start to dissipate, you'll convince yourself you lost something. But if you don't do that, then even when they dissipate, Actually, the truth of your being will get more clear, not less clear. Because it won't be sort of wonderfully and beautifully clouded over by a whole bunch of sort of experiential byproduct experience. Like I said, relief and feeling of first experienced freedom and all that kind of stuff. And you'll say, oh, Always and already means always and already. And so always and already means even when I feel like I've lost something, I haven't. I can only lose a particular experience. I can't lose the, that clear, empty, conscious space in which those experiences come and go. Now for the ego, that's kind of a tough thing to swallow. Because the ego is completely addicted to experience. And it says, I want that, right? 
It's like an immature lover. You know, in, have you ever met immature lovers? And I don't mean that, you know, when you were 16, that's an immature lover too, but I mean somebody, a lover who never grew up, who never really discovered what love was. They're still mistaking love for the, the blush of the first good kiss or romantic evening or whatever, whatever it was. And, and, you know, your hormones are going and you're, you can't eat because your tummy's turning upside down. And it's a wonderful thing, you know, that what we call falling in love, you know, um, but an immature lover endlessly mistakes love for the experience of falling in love. Now, those of you in this room that have been with somebody a long, long time, that have loved for decades maybe, or years, you know, I hope, that love transcends the blush of the first kiss and the rush of the hormones and all that beautiful stuff, which is not to be missed. But it's some people do. They mistake that for love. And so they go around, they're 60 years old, and they're still trying to have that experience over and over and over. And they think something's wrong with everybody they meet because the person can't sustain the experience of the first blush of love for them. They're like, okay, you, you couldn't do it either. I'll move on to the next and the next and the next and the next. That's what I call an immature lover. It's like somebody who's still 16, but they might be in like a 75-year-old body or a 50-year-old body or whatever. A mature lover goes, okay, that was a wonderful opening of the door of love. And that's a wonderful thing. And that's a beautiful experience of being. But that opened the door of it. How many times do I need to keep opening the door? Perhaps I should just walk in the damn room and find out what's in there beyond the getting in the doorway, beyond the first step over the threshold, right? What is, what is this thing really? And then, well, love becomes something different. It can still have the sparkle of that sort of first encounter. It's not like that that necessarily just totally dissipates, you know, but it becomes something far different, far, far better, infinitely better. And so spiritual, there's a correspondence to that in, even in spiritual realization. If we mistake the first blush, the byproducts of first discovery with that which we've discovered, then we remain kind of an immature lover, an immature realizer. We may have realized something, but we can remain in a kind of immature state, basically in an egoic tantrum underneath thing. I want it to be this way all the time, right? I want it to feel like, oh my God, all the time, right? Immature. Sorry, you're not going to get much past the threshold of the doorway of reality doing that. So experience teaches all of us that. And then we start to let go of that. And we move beyond the sort of ego mind. into just being what we are.
And then that matures for a while. And somewhere along the line, I'm not saying it always unfolds in the sequence that I'm describing, but it very often does. Something like the sequence I'm describing unfolds this way. And then at some point, being this sort of vast expanse of a kind of conscious, or just consciousness, right? It's kind of like being a conscious, awake, alive, vibrant, nothing. And boy, is it a great nothing to be. But at some point, it starts to dawn on you that, okay, that this, I am the nothing as opposed to everything else. Something doesn't quite add up. Some, there's still some division. Maybe this isn't the entire picture. Not that I have to throw away what I've realized, but maybe there's more to the picture here. And when that starts to dawn on you, maybe there is more to the picture here. Maybe it's just not this stark duality that I have going, being the aware, awake, nothing of consciousness and the, the everything of existence, the, the stuff, the form of existence. That's a fundamental duality. And that interest, that, when that arises in you, that starts to help. There's a clutching that you don't even know is happening. It's deep in the unconscious. It's holding on to the new identity of kind of formlessness. Because it's, and you can understand why, because life's a rough ride sometimes. And you come into contact with something that's never been harmed and can't be harmed ever and is always there and something that somebody can't give you and can't take away from you. You're not quick to see, see something deeper. It is such an f- amazing relief um, and security to, for lack of a better word, experience something like that. That one is not quick to let it go, and nor, neither, nor should we be quick to let it go. But it does arise like there's maybe more to the story. And so just that curiosity starts to loosen this sort of un conscious holding on to the new identity as as formless awareness and that it's not that the formless awareness identity has to go anywhere it's just the clutching at it starts to loosen and if it loosens then the kind of witness position because it's there's a certain positionality in it the position relinquishes itself and the witnessing collapses into the witnessed. It's really almost kind of like a, the first one that I just described, it's an ascendant movement, right? It's total transcendence. It's the realization I'm not body, I'm not the mind, I'm not this experience, I'm not, 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 not. The whole world of form, gross and subtle, is not your true identity and boom, there's pure awareness. That's a totally ascendant, transcendent experience, right? That's, a, that's the a sort of movement. If you could track someone's energy when they realize that, their energy is literally something that's going up and out of the body. And very literally, I mean, you can't 
see it, but if you've experienced it, you can, you can, and someone's happening for someone, you can participate and you know it's boom, boom it's going up and out and leaving. And the, the, and there's a great tendency to want to stay there because it's a kind of heaven. Because it's never been touched and it's never been harmed and it's free from everything that's painful and all that. But then the deeper movement starts to come and this relinquishing of holding onto that position happens. And when, you, when the holding starts to be relinquished, you have its, its corollary opposite. It's descent. That, that it, it's the descending movement and it descends, you might say, down into the heart. And as it descends down and when it hits the perceptual kind of a there's a there's a there's a perceptual mechanism that lies dormant in human beings and it's and it's somewhere in here it's a literally a, some it's a way of perceiving right that that's that when this descent happens starts to come alive and when we when the when the heart starts to awaken and the the witness collapses into the witnessed then we start to be perceiving it's almost literally through the heart and seeing through the heart then we then there's no position as the witness and then the witnessed and what is witnessed are seen to be one they're the same how could they be the, the same but they are the same And then the old teachings that you started with don't apply anymore, right? Not this, not that is not the teaching you need anymore. It's more like, and this, and that, right? But if you start with, and this, and that, you tend to just get confused. It, it doesn't work out that well more often than not. But so it's, it's this grand inclusion, and it's the waking up of a perceptual capacity from the heart that sees sort of the underlying unity of existence. And experientially, it's something kind of like, not that you're saying this stuff to yourself, I'm just trying to articulate it. It's something like you look up at the tree and it feels as if the tree is seeing itself. Or you look under the sky and it feels as though the sky is seeing itself. Or you touch something and you feel as though what you're touching is feeling itself. It's, there's no subject-object relationship going on anymore. There's just one seamless thing. Whatever you want to call that. You know, Ramana called it the self. The Buddhists called it Buddha nature. You know, whatever you want to call it. But it's, it's, it's the perception of just... You could, call it, you could even call it just life. Take all the spiritual connotations out of it. Life experiencing itself. Oh, I thought I was apart from life. I thought life was something that I was in and trying to negotiate. That's the egoic perspective. And now I see that I am actually life itself. The whole of it and also appearing as a particular part at the same time. How cool is that? You get to play both sides. And that's a matter of, of this perceptual mechanism sort of waking up here.
Now, of course, I've, I won't go into right now, but one of the things that when this descent happens, <sighs> see, to the ascent, the, the transcendent ascent into pure spirit, you could say, or awareness, um, the ascendant movement, I mean, you don't have to do anything, right? You, you have to, all you have to do is stop tinkering with yourself. Stop trying to fix yourself. Just let it all go just for a moment, right? Um, and that allows, that allows it to happen. Well, when the descent comes, for that, like we could say, spirit to kind of really get down and embodied, well, now it's not just whatever forms of confusion, fear, ignorance, the list goes on and on. As this movement comes back down, you start to re-engage with your humanity. Does that make sense? And in a lot of people, there's a tremendous resistance to do that because they're like, no, 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 no. I just got, I got out of that thing. I woke up and out of that. And not, to come back down and in, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> that was just, that was chaos, man. There's no way I'm doing that, you know? And so it's a, from a certain point of view, I'm not saying ultimately, but from a certain point of view, it's kind of a sacrifice. To come back down into the world of form, it's almost like a, you're, you're sacrificing a certain kind of heavenly state and to come back down in so that that heavenly state can be embodied. And of course, in order to embody it, whatever is running counter to it has to be seen, acknowledged and ultimately let go of. That sounds, makes it sound really simple. It's not necessarily that simple, but whatever runs counter to it um, is going to feel intense pressure to, to clear itself out, to let itself go. And that's its own thing. So anyway, it's the... It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the experience of two kinds of freedom. The ascent of pure, of pure awareness is the, is the experience of freedom from. I'm free from whatever it is. I'm free from who I thought I was. I'm free from, you know, a past of terrible experiences or good experiences. Who knows? I'm free from body, from mind. I'm free from thinking I'm my, this ego. I'm free from, well, whoopee. That's the definition of that freedom. It's freedom from. The other one is very different. It's, am I free enough to embody form? And first, it really helps if you can see that form and emptiness are the same thing, right? That's where they come up with words like, like how, do we, how do we explain that? What, what word do we got to invent? invent for that? And I can just see somebody scratching their head going, how about spirit? Like, that's something that's nothing, isn't it? 
Like we'll make, we'll give that a spirit, a something that's nothing, sort of like the essence of the essence of existence, you might say, something like that. Okay, we'll call it spirit. Cool. That's where these kind of words come from in a lot of ways. Is somebody scratching their head, having an experience, and going, "How in the hell do I tell anybody about this?" The, the, the old, the old words and descriptions don't really fit, right? So that's where we get those from. <laughs> but the nice thing is, it's it, it's it re it it, it reawakens the body mind. And in Zen, we, we say that one of the traditional descriptions of enlightenment is a harmonization of body, mind, and spirit. That they all kind of link up because they're all ultimately the same thing. That's the sort of realization, right? That you can be something and somebody at the same time and that somebody, something and somebodyness is actually nothing and nobody. And that nothing and nobody is actually something and somebody, so all of the, and this is the point, of course, where it becomes almost impossible to describe it. So I'm going to end the talk really quick. <laughs> and that is because at the, at the root of reality, it is coming back to the root where all the, from an intellectual point of view, and maybe even from certain experiential point of view, all of the, the it's a paradox because all of the opposites seem to come together, right? And then... Like formless, my formless awareness is the clouds and the mountains and the sky. And the clouds and mountains and the sky is awareness. Now, how does that make sense? But it's, it's so conceptually, it becomes this incredible paradox. You know, it's easy to say, well, it's all one. But what does that mean? Well, it means that you perceive that something and nothing are exactly the same. And so it becomes very, it becomes really impossible to give an accurate description. You can't really give a totally accurate description because even oneness isn't really true. You know, it's not one, it's not two. It's not either one of those. If you could kind of slam them both together somehow. Okay, so that's my quick description. So for the ascent, you, you just give attention, attention, attention to that which, that light of being, that light of awareness, that light of consciousness that's always there in every single experience you have. The nice thing about that is you don't have to wait to have any particular experience to do it. You, you don't have to be unconfused. You can be totally confused. What in the hell is he talking about? I have no idea whatsoever. Yes, but you're totally aware of your confusion, right? Oh, pay attention to that. Don't be so hung up on your confusion. If you're clear, you go, I really understand that. Okay, great. Don't get hung up up on understanding it because tomorrow you'll be unclear about something and confused. But notice that your, 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 your understanding is also something that appears within your awareness. Oh, so it doesn't, you don't have to wait to have a particular experience to do this. It's like seeing what's the same in all experience and just acknowledging it and abiding in it. That's what like Ramana meant when he said, abide in the self. It's a great saying, but of course the question is, what the heck does that mean? So that's the, that's the ascent. It's, it's that simple. The challenge of it is to keep it that simple. 
right? Because you are, you're deviating. This is where the spiritual, it's not really a process, but I don't know whatever word to you. The spiritual process and the psychological process starts to deviate. Not that they're not connected because they are, and they do interrelate throughout the whole of your life. But at a really fundamental sense, the psychological thing is the, is the experience of process, right? There's always a process going on. You're trying to get clear on a process. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to get not suffer so much and, you know, whatever the psychological process is where you're trying to get, mitigate as much suffering as you can. But this other thing is where you're, leaving process alone for a moment. Because as long as you're engaged in trying to fix yourself, you can't pay attention to this other thing. It doesn't mean there's not a time to try to fix yourself. I would love it like if 80% of the people came to me spent a year or two with a really, really skilled therapist. It would really make their and my life a lot easier. You know, it would be, it would be great. And, and, and these two do keep intermingling. I don't mean to to imply that they're, they're totally separate. But another one of those paradoxes, they're not separate, but they are distinct. And that's useful, useful to know when you're doing your process work, do your process work. Fine. When you do that, do that. When you're trying to wake up, don't, you're, you're, in, you're engaged in something else, right? You, you're leaving process behind. You're leaving fixing yourself up behind. Maybe you need to be fixed up, but... Awakening isn't, they're not, they're not the same thing. So when you're engaged in the, the spiritual dimension of it, you're engaged in the fundamental reality of your being. You're not really engaged in trying to improve your relative human experience. You get what I mean? And I'll just say it again. I know I've said it all because I, when I say this, oftentimes people will ask me or write me or something thinking that I'm... Um, I'm denying the usefulness of the psychological process. Like I said, I'm not. I would love it if almost everybody came to me with a good couple of years of therapy under their belt. It would really help them. And even in, in the midst of their spiritual life, you're going to have to deal with your psychology even if you transcend it because, well, probably not all the confusion is going to go away just in one blasting moment of insight. It's very different for different people. Some people like 20% just drops away. You didn't solve it. You didn't resolve it. It just disappears. For somebody else, maybe 90% just disappears and it's just not there anymore. You know, that's the, that's the power of these, some of these fundamental shifts, but generally there's going to be some, you know, we can never divorce ourselves from our psychology, right? Not effectively, nor should we try. But we should understand that there is a kind of, dis- there, there are these distinct tracks. They're related, but not the same. And if you're really clear on that, it will really help you. Because then when you need to do your psychological work and your self-improvement stuff, then you can be totally committed and you do that at that time. And then when you're doing this other thing, right? When you're doing the waking up, you're not confusing yourself thinking, I've got to be just the right kind of person. Otherwise, I can't wake up because that's not true. You can be a total effing mess and wake up. I've seen it, <laughs> right? 
it's, it's really advisable not to be a mess, if you can, right? It's a really good thing not to be. But it really shows you that you do not earn your way towards being what you are. You don't, it doesn't work that way. Even if you, if, you're a, if you feel like you're a complete mess and you, and you do kind of wake up out of that identification, it doesn't mean that, like I said, probably not every bit of that messiness is going to disappear. So at some point, you'll re-engage. But you'll re-engage from a different position. You'll re-engage from, like, I'm treating myself as though I'm somebody I care about. You'll re-engage not from a pursuit of trying to be whole because you already know that you are. But you'll engage from a sense of, like I said, a sense of love. If there's, if there's confusion, if there's still any turmoil, well, of course you'd pay attention to it. Of course your heart would go out to it. Even if it's not essentially making you more in any way than you already are, it's still a completely worthwhile endeavor to do just out of compassion and love. It's a, it's a different standpoint, though, right? Then you're not doing it from a sense of lack. You're doing it from a sense of love and sacrifice. God so loved the world that he gave it his only begotten son. There's the description of it. If you don't just take that as a story that happened 2,000 years ago, but you will come, if you haven't already, I'm sure some of you have, you will come upon that point when you're in this very beautiful, transcendent, almost kind of quasi-heavenly state. And the thing that's going to get you to re-engage and come to a deeper understanding and a deeper experience of being, it's going to be, it's going to be kind of like a sacrifice because I'm letting go of that, of holding it. Not letting go of it like leaving it behind, but just not clinging. And it's a sacrifice. And why do you do it? You do it out of love. Because nothing gets left behind. Nothing gets left behind. That's the love of it. Nothing gets left behind. That's the beauty of it. That's why you re-engage, because nothing gets left behind. Nothing and no one gets left. You don't just abandon your suffering self forever. Nothing gets left behind. And I think that's a very intuitive human, heartful instinct, right? Now go out there and forget all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Don't hold on to it. 